Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's your friend, Rick from Blind, and today I'm going to introduce you all to Amanda Richardson. Amanda Richardson is the CEO of CoderPad. She's chief executive with extensive experience in product management and strategy, having helped scale multiple startups like Hotel Tonight, Prezi, Rabbit, and Snagajob to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And for those of you who might be living under a rock, I imagine most of our audience is aware of CoderPad, but just in case I won't judge you, CoderPad is the leading software platform for evaluating technical talent. The company serves more than 4,000 customers and has hosted more than 4 million technical interviews in more than 40 languages. Thanks for coming on the show, Amanda. Awesome to be Ooh. here. Thank you guys for having me. Wait, wait, can I just, 4 million? Yeah. Wow. 4 million interviews. Can you walk us through your career? Oh, it's been a windy journey, but yes, we can do that. Um, I'd love to. So I actually um, still aspire to be an astronaut. I started as a physics major in college. Uh, I wanted to be an astronaut and I failed out really hard. Um, definitely did not make it out of second year physics. And so uh, ended up landing in finance, ended up then going to Wall Street like so many of the finance kids um, from there was told to go get my MBA and get an education. So I came out here to California and that was really when um, I'd say my career in tech started. Um, I realized as much, and I do think there's a lot of beneficial foundations to the consulting and banking jobs. I think there's a lot that I appreciate, particularly today as you enter boardroom conversations, there's a lot of foundation that comes from there. Um, but being out here in California where people are actually doing things, not just making spreadsheets or slideshows about other people doing things, um, it was a very exciting and eye-opening time. So I fell into um, a biz dev job because that's really the only thing uh, MBAs are qualified to do. And maybe that isn't even a real job. I don't know. Um, but the CEO who ran a healthcare software company was kind enough to take me under his wing. And so I did partnerships and analysis for him. Um, it was a big healthcare company called Eclipses at the time. It's since been acquired. And um, I would do these uh, agreements and discussions with, you know, build by partner. What markets are we going to, what products are we going to do? And we'd go to these meetings and nothing would get done by the product and engineering team. And I was like, what is going on? These people suck. They are so slow. And um, of course, the CTO pulled me aside one day. He was like, well, if you think you're so good at it, why don't you come and try yourself? And that's how I fell into product management. And that's when I realized <laughs> that the people who make the slides have no idea what they're talking about, uh, particularly the MBAs and biz dev. Um, so from there, I started a career in product. I moved to over to the consumer side after that for a company named Snagajob. Um, that was an interesting ride. And then went to a company named Prezi. At Prezi, I enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed the team and I love the product for those who don't remember that was a software product. I think the, the big lesson learned for me at Prezi was, um, a lot of SaaS fundamentals, but I was traveling to Europe every month. And that was just a killer. Um, I love the product, but we really had a hard time 
pivoting the team towards the market and towards where our users were. And then going back and forth to Europe, um, as most of the team was based in Europe, was so hard. And so I had met the CEO of Hotel Tonight. Um, well, I mean, truth be told, I like kind of stalked him and um, said, you have to meet me. <laughs> and I sat down with him and I was like, you need me to run product. And he was like, we are 30 people. I don't need anyone like you. Um, but I stayed in touch and I kept nagging him. And then eventually he called me and he said, hey, look, I think we might need product help. And um, I moved over to the Hotel Tonight team early on, which I loved, you know, Hotel Tonight brought together uh, travel, which is a passion of mine, consumer, we were mobile, which was, you know, kind of a thing uh, back then. And uh, we had quite a four year ride, we had all sorts of missteps, um, we had all sorts of successes, and um, happy to go into all the messes along the way, but we did, um, while I was there, I guess I should say, my role changed from being really product management to more of a general strategy role. So we created a separate data team. Um, we had a whole bunch of data challenges, like just no one really owned the data problem, which is a continued theme I see in so many businesses. And so we created a data team, but I didn't wanna be the, the data nerd who was just creating spreadsheets again. Um, I wanted to actually have a hand in the business. So I demanded that he give me a data and strategy title, which was not a thing, totally made up. But um, Sam did it, and I was grateful for it. And then we started discussions with Airbnb. Um, transparently, I uh, went out and interviewed for a COO role. Um, I didn't get it, um, and I didn't get it because um, I revealed I was pregnant in the interview process at the end. And I think there are probably a lot of people who are like, that's illegal. I mean, I can see your faces the audience doesn't have the benefit of seeing your faces but i can see you being like you you can't not hire the pregnant lady um but it's real guys like i definitely got dinged when i told him at our final interview where we were doing the plan around what we were how i was going to reorg the team and what was going to happen and um we were actually uh having a beer and uh, i said well you know it's 5 45 on friday i have to go home to my nanny and he said oh you have kids and I was like, yes. And he was like, oh, how's that going to work? And I was like, well. So that's two of them. So, right? Yeah. Pregnant yeah. and kids. Pregnant. And I, well, I have a kid at this point. He doesn't know I'm pregnant yet. Five oh, minutes yeah. later, I dropped the bomb and I was like, look, if we're going to be serious business partners, I'm going to use COO. I want to be your operating partner. Um, you should, he said, are you going to have more kids? And I said, you should know I'm pregnant. And he was like, you're having a beer. And I was like, Yes, you can have one beer while you're pregnant. No one dies. Um, don't abuse alcohol while you're pregnant, but I'm just saying you can have a beer. Um, and so he uh, backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. That offer never came to light, which was kind of crazy. Um, but two weeks later, once they hired a single man um, for with 10 years less experience for the job, I was meeting with the recruiter. And the recruiter said, why did you want that job anyway? You have a better job at Hotel Tonight. And I was like, well, I want to be a COO. And he was like, why? I was like, because I want to be CEO. And he was like, well, then go be CEO. And I was like, how does one do that? And he was like, the same way you be COO. Just tell me. And within a week, I had three CEO interviews. Wow. Which was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So 
um, put it out to the universe. Like that's one of my life's lessons. Like you got to speak up about what you want. Nobody knows what you want unless you say it. Um, you won't always get it. I can tell you many times I didn't get it, but you got to at least try. So I said, I wanted to be CEO. I then got um, called for a couple of different roles, ended up taking the CEO role at, Co at Rabbit, not Coderpad, Rabbit, um, which was an Andreessen and Bessemer back company. We'd raised over $40 million. We had two and a half million users. Um, we had 10 months of runway left. I was at this point 34 weeks pregnant, which you know because I told you I was pregnant before. And we started a banking process. And the short version of that story is we ran out of cash. Um, I kind of blogged extensively about it. And uh, 10 months later, I had to lay off the entire team. We hustled hard. We couldn't figure out a business model. Um, happy to go into all those details. But out of Rabbit, I spent some time consulting, got a call from an investment firm that was looking at this tiny company called Coderpad. And like you guys, um, you know, I was like, I know Coderpad. They were like, you can't know Coderpad. It's like three people in a WeWork. I was like, no, I totally know Coderpad. And what do you mean it's three people in a WeWork? That's crazy. And sure enough, it was three people in a WeWork. So that was almost four years ago. Um, Vincent, who's the founder, was selling the business. And so I came in to help scale it. And now we're almost 100 people globally. And it's been a very busy three or four years um, with a lot of failures and COVID and then tech hiring and then the tech collapse and the layoffs. Um, but it's been, it's been quite a ride. So that is a little bit about how I ended up here today. You know, if you don't mind, so how did you scale so quickly? Um, For so three people and we work to, you know, <laughs> 4 million view, you know, interviews taking place. It's been wild. Um, so I would say the number of employees doesn't correlate to the number of customers um, always. And I think this is like another good life lesson I hear. I have a lot of people that, oh God, we would interview particularly two years ago when tech hiring was insane. You like literally couldn't get people to apply to a job. And they'd be like, well, why would I come to CoderPad? You only have 50 employees, 60 employees. Like that's nothing. I can go be at you know, whatever startup with 500 employees. And I was like, well, is the size of the team really what matters or is the size of the business? Um, after Rabbit failed, one of the big things I took away was like the importance of like maintaining control, maintaining your burn and um, maintaining profitability. So we've always been profitable. And so that means we don't scale the team a ton, but we have been able to really scale the customer base. So how did we scale? We had there, you know, at three people, we were under-resourced. We had no sales team. We had no customer success team. We had no marketing team. We had no product team. We had no finance team. Um, so just putting the pieces in place kind of right-sized it. And then we did an acquisition, um, which was awesome. It really extended the team. It extended the product suite, uh, extended the capabilities. But yeah, that's how you end up with 4 million interviews out of a WeWork three or four years later. <laughs> Isn't it something that one of Naval's principles where he'll say, don't look at it just for the number of people, you know, because that's not a good metric just to brag and say, I manage 50 people. Instead, you want to have a great business as opposed to just managing people, right? Well, not only that, the impact you have is the customers, not the people you manage, right? Like it's much cooler to talk about 4,000 customers and like how you can influence things as opposed to, I mean, 
management sucks. People are really hard. You know, it's, it's like a challenge. <laughs> it's the hardest part of the day, right? And so I love talking to customers. I love working on product strategy, like the HR stuff, the people op stuff. I'm like, oh God. Um, but yeah, I think so many people look at, you know, how's your company doing is answered in employee count as opposed to metrics that matter. And this town has had a hard life lesson on that over the past year or two around, you know what matters? Revenue. Revenue matters. Making money matters. Um, having customers matters. Uh, it's really important. What a surprise. I, I wouldn't have ever known. <laughs> but I'm telling you, two years ago, people looked, I mean, I can name five people who didn't wouldn't work for me because we weren't scaling our employees fast enough. They're like, you're not growing. I was like, this doesn't correlate to my revenue growth. But wasn't I mean, that the whole big problem, right? Because you just kept hiring to build these fiefdoms within the company yeah. to just stroke your ego and how important you are, but you're not being profitable. You just have more <laughs> bodies, right? It was like, well, and it's like every solution was to throw more people at it and it was opposed to efficiency, which, you know, um, and, you know, a lot of CEOs Zuck on down have gotten crap for like the year of efficiency, but there's some, there was a lot of waste um, happening. A lot of big teams, a lot of jobs that existed. I'm like, that person is like managing someone else's problems. Like, what are we doing? Um, but I think, uh, I think the shakeout's real. And as we just said, like it's coming back for sure. There's better tech hiring, but it's been a, it's been a year and a half of correction out here. Now I, I'm curious, cause I, I've never had the opportunity to, interview a CEO that's so candid um, in how they got their role. So you literally went to a recruiter and their advice was, well, just go be a CEO. So, I mean, my lesson from that kind of anecdote is there's no typical career path to becoming a C-suite executive, certainly a, a CEO. Um, can we like dig deeper there? <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I knew as a, as a, as a young, I, I knew in business school, once I realized like people actually ran companies, I was like, I really want to be a CEO. And I have friends who say, I remember meeting you in school and you were like, I'm going to be a CEO. And we're so glad it finally happened, but I had no idea how to get there. And I just kind of kept taking like the next step and a little bit of a, like, say yes. Like I've always had the attitude of like, why not? You know, a lot of people can come up with reasons not to do something. I'm a find a reason to say yes kind of girl. Um, tell my kids they eat a lot of cookies, find a reason to say yes. Um, <laughs> so it's not a great parenting, but it hopefully works out on the career path. And so I think all along the way, I've just kind of been like, yeah, let's try. And then you've got to say what you want. Like, you've got to talk about what your goals are. And I was surprise, you know, it was funny when I ended up announcing I was leaving for a CEO job, a number of people were like, oh, I thought you were just really happy being ahead of product and you'd want to keep being the head of product. And I was like, wow, huh? No, that's not me. But I hadn't shared, I hadn't shared my, my, my dreams. Um, and I think, and, and then for the people out there who are managing, right? Like, are you talking to people about their, what their dreams are? Like, it probably won't be with your company. The average tenure in tech is like maybe four years, three years. So like help people get their dreams, ask, put feelers out. You know, um, I'm so grateful. It was Bill Beer at Diversa. He's a wonderful human. He was the recruiter and uh, I'm so glad he asked, right? Like 
had he not asked, like, who knows where I'd be? Now, I'm very interested because Cooterpad, small company, very, very like bootstrap startup, almost the textbook definition of one. Do they not have an executive before? How does someone become a CEO of an existing established company? Because, uh, you know, usually with a startup, you, you're you one of the founders and, and I'm often reading bios that say, oh, well, blah, blah, blah is founder and CEO. And to me, that just makes sense. But I don't know, <laughs> one just kind of like slip in and get that, get that role. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a lesson out there. There's a lot of us who are not uh, necessarily founders. And I, um, I think I, I know enough about myself to know I'm probably not a zero to one person. That first four year grind of figuring it out, market fit, like it's so hard. There's so many doubts. It's so grueling. Um, and all that work was done by our founder, Vincent. And I would say kudos to him for picking his head up and being like, I've got a lot of customers. The next phase of this is turning, you know, what was originally was a bootstrap side project and then became a bootstrap business. And now like, I think there's a ton of potential here, but I'm not the guy. Like, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to hire a VP of marketing, a VP of this. Like, you know, the CEO job is, I think, very cool, but not everybody loves the paperwork and the people and the board relationships and kind of, you know, some of the PR stuff that you have to do. And so I think they, you know, Vincent was like, I don't, that's not my jam. And I remember talking to him, we had dinner the night before the deal closed. And I was like, why really are you selling? Like, is this thing a total like clusterfuck? <laughs> like I'm just walking into a mess or like, what is going on, man? And he was like, no, I just, he's like, this is just not me. And it's you. Um, it's what I love. I love taking a great idea. I'm blessed that it was a great business. Um, I mean, I say I'm blessed, but I actively searched for, uh, a good business and then scaling it. I mean, every business has challenges, but scaling is a different problem from zero to one. And I love the scaling. I love the building out the teams, figuring out where to invest, how you go from like one-to-one to to like one-to-many, whether that's in products, whether that's in teams, whether that's in markets. Um, It's really a lot of fun for me. And so, uh, yeah, you got to speak up. There's a lot of CEO jobs that are out there. You just got to tell people you're ready. So you mentioned that the founder sold the company. Who did he sell it to? Yeah, so we're private equity backed, um, oh. growth equity backed. There's a Summit Partners is my investor, and they are an amazing team out of Menlo Park. Um, they do a number of these, and so you know this is uh, something they're experienced in, which I'm grateful for because you know there's just always something new around the corner, and it's every CEO will tell you it takes a good board and a good set of whether they're investors or just board members, um, advisors to help you, and they've been awesome. You know, it's interesting. There's two like big pieces that I'm getting get, taking out of this. One is I love the fact, just ask. And it's so simple when you think about it. Just ask. And also the subtext is being like a bit of a nudge, right? To be a little pushy and, you know, try and not just, just say, uh, give up, but just keep pushing and going at it. And, the, and for that guy, Vincent, you referenced, it's interesting. It, he probably made an assessment, like, what do I like? What am I good at? And Kudos to him to say, hey, this is not my, as you said, that's not his jam to be the CEO. I'll do what I do best, which makes a lot of sense because other people take these jobs just for the title and they hate it and they're not good at it. 
and they might as well do what they're good at. Like for instance, I've run a search firm for a long time. I don't manage because I suck at it. I hate it. I'm not good at it. I'm not detail oriented. I don't have that. I don't have that skill set. But I have the skill set to recruit people, you know, and to be a schmoozy sales kind of person. And you know, so I figure that's who I am. Like, like, why am I going to fight it? You know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. I might as well go with my strengths. Yeah, I mean, that was that. that was like the Marcus yeah. Buckingham thing, right? Like lean on your strengths. And I feel like this was something I just kind of made a bet on early, which is there are a lot of things I'm not good at, like the zero to one problem I wouldn't be good at. Right. right. So you you instead of starting yourself, you find yeah. like an early one who already did the hard work and then you just capitalized on it. Like, yeah, thank you. Piggy back on no, someone else's hard work. Peace, yeah. man. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that's right. Like you have to know like what you're good at and do the soul searching of like where you actually get your energy. And I think that's really hard in a career, right? Like particularly when you're like 20 and 30, you're like looking around and like this person has this superpower and this person has this superpower and you think you have to have everything and like you get your performance review and it's like, you're not good at, I mean, the, my performance reviews all the time. This will not surprise you. My performance, every review I've had was that you're not buttoned up enough. Um, Wait, and, why would that be a thing? I know. Buttoned up enough. That seems well, so. You're in finance, you're in biz dev, like you need to be professional. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's true. You're right. I'm not buttoned up enough. And I could have fixed that problem and just like squashed my soul. But I was like, you know, this isn't the company for me. And this isn't the job for me. And that's fine. Like, you got to get out of that. Um, I think it's so, been my answer as opposed to like, oh, I'm going to fit into your little, you know, box and then just kind of like squash my soul. It makes great. It does look like the dumbest thing. Like why if someone is good and they're doing well, right? And they're adding value. Like, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Well, you know, no, come in with a clown are... suit. Big deal. If you're, if you're achieving and you're doing great. I mean, this is what I love about tech, right? Like it's a little more like everybody embraces their weird, but look, I spent time on, I spent time in New York. I spent time on wall street. You know where they don't embrace your weird anywhere on the (laughs) trading floor. Like you, like you've got, you want to work at a hedge fund. You got to button that up. Like keep your mouth closed, like do the right thing. And that works. And look, my husband will be the first one to tell you that we probably would be making more money at a hedge fund, but I wouldn't be having fun. I'd be miserable. He'd be, we'd be miserable, right? You got to like lean in and like be yourself, but it's really, it takes a lot of courage to that. It takes a lot of soul searching to say, Hey, I appreciate your feedback, but that's not who I want to be. I'm out of here. That's I love this. You're, you're just kind of giving all sorts of great advice. Seriously. I mean, because that's because most people will try to say, hey, I just want to blend in, whether it's work or just in society, right? I don't want to make waves. I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to stand out. And that's why you have one life to live. Why? Like, you know, don't you know, live it the way you really want to, right? Yeah, it's not easy, though. I'll tell you. I mean, they're even, you know, name the meeting. Like, I'll be in board meetings on my board. I mean, I love my board members, but, uh, you know, they'll just be like, there she goes again. Like, She's wacky. You know, it's fine. It's okay. I have purple hair. Like, there's a lot of weird things about me. Where do you find that courage, right? Because we have so many listeners that are kind of at that, like, middle career point, or they're just about to get to that middle management role or that middle, like, where the, you know, you're not, you no longer have that, like, entry level kind of qualifier before your job title. Um, and, you know, it, it's very easy when, all the folks that are like mentoring you and trying to coach you are saying, 
well, all these performance reviews, they're really great for you to get the feedback. You know, feedback is a gift is often a cliche and you should just kind of study and take notes and take everything to heart. And, you know, that they're giving you the blueprint to succeed in that company or in that role or on that team. Uh, where do you find the courage to say, actually, no, I, I can respect and, and see your feedback, but this is my passion. This is my interest. And this is the way that I'll do it. Because uh, it, it's not easy for many people. Oh, wow, Rick, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I think it takes, I mean, honestly, like it takes, um, it takes a lot of failures. Like um, it takes um, a lot of humility, but I will tell you, um, it also takes, I mean, I think if you've, I guess two things I would say. One, if you've done the grunt work or you've done, like you're, you're doing a good job, right? Maybe you don't fit for whatever reason, but you've done your grunt work. You're like willing to do the work. Like you can always get a job. Um, and I think there's a confidence that comes in that, right? Like I, you know, if this CEO thing doesn't fall, work out and like coder pad implodes, whatever, you know, Six Sigma events, like I know I can go get a job. So that I think certainly brings some um courage. Uh, and you have to do that because you know that you know how to do the job. You're not just kind of flying around the ether. And so I think that is an important part of it. And then I think the other one is um, honestly, like learning to laugh at yourself, learning to talk about your failures, learning to laugh about your failures. Look, I mean, rabbit imploded guys. Like it, it didn't like kind of fizzle out. Like I had 48 hours. I had to like beg a bank to let me run a two week severance package. Like the whole thing, like inflaming, you know, big crash into the mountain flame out. Like I could like hide that. And it, look, trust me, it's taken months of me talking about it to not want to hide it. But you, you learn more from the failures than you, as much as you do from the wins, right? The wins you're like, Oh, well, what I did was be me. Right. So obviously I can keep doing that, but the, the failures are like, I was me and I fucked up. Like, what did I do wrong? Um, and so I think you have to embrace the failures, talk about them, which looks like courage. I'm glad you see it as courage. I think of it more as therapy. And so like, <laughs> there's a bit of, you know, just like you got to embrace and you got to, um, none of us are perfect. We're all human. We're all learning. There's a, um, Larry Ellison used to give this great quote. They had the America's cup here in San Francisco. This was like 10 years ago. And someone asked him like, why do you like you run Oracle? Like, why are you worried about sailing? Like, why do you worry about, and he said, you know what I love about sports? There's a start and an end. And when you end, you're the winner. And you know, what's the challenges about business and life and careers. There's never an end. I mean, I guess we're all going to die. And so that'll be the end. Maybe not depending on how things go in Silicon Valley with cryogenics, but let's just pretend we're all going to die. So we're all going to die. Like there is an end, but like between now and then you're up, you're down. And so you just kind of have to like a little bit roll with those punches. Um, cause there is no end. And so you just got to keep learning and bounce back. When you go through that though, how how does it in Silicon Valley is it different? Is that more almost acceptable because it's part of how these things work? Boom, bust, things happen, or it's still it's just it's just tough for the for for a, a while to get through it. I don't. I mean, I don't know how it is anywhere else. I would say it was. I mean, it was. It's really hard. It's really. Um, 
look, when you, when you shut down a startup, um, a lot of people aren't around, <laughs> you know, you go IPO and everybody wants to stand on the podium with you. When you shut down, it's kind of lonely. No one really wants to talk to you. Um, and I get that. And it's, it's, um, maybe this town is more generous with that because we've, you know, we do embrace risk. We take a lot of failures and we see that as part of the learning process. And, um, I certainly will be one to amplify, like, this is part of my learning process. Here's why you want to hire me. Here are all the mistakes I made some, somewhere else that I've learned from. Um, so I think you do have to do that, but I, I have no idea um, if this town is better at it or worse than it. But I will say a lot of people were like, you can have, you can have one failed CEO job, but you can't have two. So choose your next Holy. job wisely. Yeah. What is it like you get one mulligan? Is that it? Like one mulligan and that's it. And yeah, I mean, one time, maybe you can blame yeah. the market. Two times you have to blame the CEO. This might sound weird, but is there something to it that if you put yourself out of the equation, just like, you know, someone runs something, it doesn't work, it blows up. But then it makes you think, you know, differently moving forward which actually might be very good if they want somebody to hire because they've been through the fire and they know what it's like and they know how to deal with it, as opposed to somebody who's always, you know, had it going well, never have faced a lot of adversity, didn't go through really terrible times. And then their ego gets in the way and they do crazy stuff because they just feel everything always works. And that then it blows up. Does it, so you're you know, saying you're good at recruiting. No, you're really good at the sales <laughs> recruiting thing. I <laughs> think that's it. That there's I, a part, I mean, like, I I, I, for sure. I mean, I think that's true. Like, yeah. I think, um, you know, the successful people have no, I have no way to decouple them from the market, from the industry, right? Like CoderPad as an example, right? We are very susceptible to market. We're hiring, right? So we're more extreme based on what's going on in the macro economy. And then we're hiring. So we're even more extreme. Like, I, there are days where CoderPad has a really bad month, but that's because there's a hiring freeze and the layoff numbers are over a hundred thousand this month, right? Like I may be a good CEO or a bad CEO, but that's the market. So I think you have to be able, there's no perfect way to detangle those. And so um, I would say there is a lot that is about what the lessons you've learned and what you've done in the past. And for sure, the lessons of rabbit live with me like deep, probably more deep than the lessons of success at hotel tonight. If that makes sense, like the pain is visceral with the rabbit one. So I'm more attuned to that one. And that is why we have a scrappier company. We talk a lot about efficiency. We're very stingy on how many hires we make. We really try to be judicious in how we plan and how we scale and think a lot about, you know, marketing spend and all this stuff. Um, because I've, done that. And I think the other thing is, um, based on the, the lessons of the failures and the, you know, I'm probably not the best set to go do some new wild, whatever, I don't know, scale, 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 figure out revenue later, because I did that and it didn't work out. So I'm sensitive to it, right? Scale, 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 figure out revenue later is probably better fit for another CEO. Um, so I think there's, um, not just like, my lessons learned and how that makes me qualified for the next job, but also the next jobs for which it'll be a great fit. I love that reminder because I think people often forget that there are just situations out of their control that can actually determine 
your kind of pathway of your career or um, there's certain like things that just speak to certain people, right? So, I mean, for example, I, I'm like a weirdo in terms of PR because I love that kind of your butt's on the fire and that like chaos and that, that you know, I, I would do well in like a crisis communications role or something like similar, right? Where every day is new. And, and I know that about myself uh, where like, I, I probably wouldn't be able to work at like a SaaS company that has like three or two or three product launches every year. And in between I'm doing like case studies or something, right? Right. So yeah. You like the action. I, you like the action, Rick. Is that oh, what it is? Oh, like, yeah. yeah. And, and it, it took me like many years to kind of get to this point, right? Because there were along the way, there were people that, you know, they, they thought they had my best interest in heart. They were trying to tell me like, oh, well, um, you like that because you're young or, oh, you wouldn't like doing it every single day or, you know, like keep an open eye, like never close any doors and in, in, in comms and PR and, and that kind of like generic advice that you often give someone else. Um, but I, I, I love that, like kind of introspection to realize like, what are my skill sets? What are my strengths? What do I actually like doing? And then really kind of quizzing the companies to find opportunities that are, are more of a fit, right? Rather than using kind of more simple or superficial things like company size or series of their last fundraising or or, or even like who your manager is, right? I, yeah. I've seen so many people company say Company like, culture. Right. <laughs> and what does what that matters mean? to me is the company culture. No, I mean, I, I, I talk to people who obviously who are job hunting all the time. That is what all the do. time. But um, there's also, you know, certain people who reach out and like, I'm looking for a job. And I'm like, okay, what are you interested in? And they're like, software series a b c or d with um happy people and my manager right and you're like i have nothing to do with that but the ones who are successful and who i think um i'm more able to help are the ones who are just really specific about what they want right i really want to work in consumer tech right at you know, solving this problem or look at this area. And I'll be like, I don't know exactly that person, but if you pivot like five degrees to the right, I know that person, right? And that is such a better way to find a job and to do the job hunt than to say like, oh, I just want to work for a great company that's growing. Okay, well, what pet food, where are we? Um, <laughs> so I think uh, my advice to those job hunting or thinking about job hunting or by the way, always be job hunting. So when you're looking for your next informational interview, um, be really specific about what you want. Even if it doesn't end up being a perfect match, at least you've given the person a very tangible view of what they're looking for. Um, it's so interesting you, you're talking about it because I notice on LinkedIn where when you know you see all these layoffs and downsizings, you see those banners pop up, the green banners, you know, open to work, and that's cool but they don't say anything. It's just like open to work. So that if you want, let's say as a recruiter or anybody who wants to help them, like, well, how can I help you? Cause you're not saying what type of job you want, what kind of career you want, what kind of compensation you want, what kind of title you want, what industry. So then instead of people helping you, they get kind of annoyed. Like, all right, so I got to do the homework 
and now check out your bio and figure out who you are, what you do to help you instead of you helping yourself. Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is like no one, I mean, yeah, I don't know if we get annoyed or we just like, I, great. I have nothing to, I don't know. (laughs) What am I I supposed to do with this information? Yeah. Yeah, What am I supposed to do with this? That's right. But I mean, I think the people who are like, Hey, look, I just got laid off, but I want to be you know, a sales engineer selling whatever. I'm like, Oh, I don't know a sales engineer role, but I know an AE role or I know a CSM role or, or I know an actual engineering role. Like there's a lot of ways you can pivot from something much more tangible and crisp and, you know, bring it full circle. Right. How did I get the CEO job? Cause I said, I wanted to be CEO. I could have just said, I want to be a C-suite leader at a great company growing. And the guy I'm like, all right, cool. Hey. See you later. You know, um, and it look, it's risky, right? You're putting your neck out there. The guy could have laughed me out of the meeting and been like, you want to be a CEO. I mean, Bill's a much better human than that. He wouldn't have done that, but you know what I mean? Like maybe it wasn't a fit. And I'm sure there were people who I'd work with who are like, she's going to be a CEO. You're crazy. Um, but you know what? Fuck them. Here we are now. And, uh, you know, you just keep going. Um, you can't, you can't have everybody love you. I think that's another, like, you know, growing up lesson is you've got to pick a lane and you got to see what you want. And you can't, not everybody's going to love you and that's okay. It's fine. It takes all kinds. I mean, I, I want to like dive a little deeper in terms of like taking your legs, especially since you've been so forthcoming. Can we walk through the lessons learned at rabbit? Like what it was like to, to, Turn down that startup and 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 how you kind of were able to pivot and, and and land that second CEO job, especially when you mentioned that the stakes were kind of high, right? In terms of okay, well, I, I quote unquote messed up once, you can't quote unquote mess up again. Yeah. So you needed to be her PR person at that time. You were just taking <laughs> all around, right? And my recruiter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would make no, all I the mean- difference. Rabbit was a tough lesson. So um, it was a fabulous product. Great team. Um, Philippe Clavel, who was the uh, CTO, had done an awesome job. And the product was around like paired streaming, like watching um, TV together. If you've ever had the problem where you and your partner, friend, whatever, are trying to watch the same Netflix show or whatever, and you're like, ready, go, because you're like bicoastal or whatever, and you don't want to like you don't want someone to see the axe murderer before the other one does or whatever it is. Like that was the problem we solved, single stream relay. And so a uh, very cool technology. We had millions of users who use it to watch sporting events and movies and like long distance relationships. And it was kind of a wonderful, um, awesome product. The problem was we didn't have the rights to the content. So when you try to monetize someone else's content, um, the media companies don't really like that. So that cut off a bunch of angles to monetization um, and generating revenue. And so what started as like, we'll improve the product and drive more use quickly became like, well, when we do that, how are we actually going to make money? And so we started having all these conversations with uh, different media companies who were um, maybe slower to adopt technology is the right way to say it. What? And, and yeah, I know it's surprising. And so on one hand, you had like the fast media companies where Netflix was like, we can build that in 10 minutes. Um, and then you had like the other media companies. I had one very old line, shall remain anonymous, um, CEO of a publicly traded media company. We met with him. We were like, let's do a partnership. We can bring your stuff online. And he looked at me and he goes, you're stealing my content and you can only come up with 3 million users. And I was like, oh, 
Ouch. Oh, Ouch. Yikes. Um, so you're saying no. <laughs> That's when I, yeah, I thought you would just say, oh, so when do we start? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. You want three million more? This is great. It's like price is zero and you can only come up with three million. Um, so anyway, we started doing these media conversations and then learning about different types of content it could work with. And we had, um, you know, kind of the sketched out terms and we're waiting for a term sheet for a partnership. And so this was, I think, early May and, you know, we were cash out at the end of May and we'd been working on this for a while. And so, you know, the CEO was like, oh, I'll send you, you know, I'll send you the terms on Friday. Friday came and went, Saturday came and went. I'm calling our banker being like, oh my God, oh my God, where's the, where is it? And he's like, oh, I'll text him, I'll text him. And so then Monday afternoon, guy sent me an email. He didn't even call. And he was like, we're out. We're not doing the deal. And I texted my CFO and I was like, we need to go for a walk. I heard from them. And he was like, uh-oh, coming. And so we went for a walk around the neighborhood. I think we walked for two and a half hours. And I was like, dude, we didn't get the cash. It's done. Um, and we had, it was Monday, we were running payroll on Wednesday and we had enough money left for one more payroll one run. And so we had uh, some venture debt. So I called our bankers and I said, we're done. All options are out. You own the company. Um, I would like to run payroll to give the team two weeks severance. Um, and I actually had to fight them. They were like, no, it's our cash. Why would we do that? Right. And I was like, come on, man, you have a heart. Yeah. Do the um, right thing. Yeah. And so, uh, we got it all done and, uh, got them to agree. And so Wednesday we had an all hands meeting where I pretty confident 80% of that room thought we were going to announce our new partnership and our new funding round and how excited we were. And there was like a palpable positive buzz. I like walked into that room and I still had like two more things I needed to do. And I could just feel the positive energy. And I, my heart, like people say like your heart sinks and there are definitely moments where your heart sinks. My heart sank. And then all the blood rushed out of my face. Oh. And I was just like, guys, I, I'm afraid you're expecting good news, but I have bad news. We're done. This is it. It's over. Um, and we shut down. That was it. That was everybody's last day of work, except mine, because the CEO doesn't get to resign. I had to stick on with the transition. But um, how did yeah. they react, by the way? Like, were they understanding? Were they angry? Were they? It's a mix, and it's a fully appropriate mix. I mean, it's it's hard, right? And it's. It's everybody's livelihood. I mean, I'm the primary breadwinner winner in my family. And so I knew what the impact was on my family. And I know that many of them had partners who didn't work. They had children. Like one woman was pregnant. Like, oh, like this wasn't how any of us wanted it to go. And it was so hard. It was so hard. It was so hard. It was so hard. Um, and it was a great team. And I mean, think that's the other lesson, right? I mean, I remember we learned this in... Um, we used to talk about this when I was doing investing before business, before business school. And so if you look at a stock's performance over time, something like 60% is attributed, attributed to the overall macro economy, right? So if the S&P is up, the stock will be up or whatever, 60%. 30% is the industry, right? So if people are bullish on software or people are bullish on consumer or household goods, whatever, that's 30% of the stocks. Only 10% really is the performance of the individual company. 
and this is like, I'm sure there's like some financial professor who's like, no, 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 it's this, 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 but that's roughly speaking, it's like 60, 30, 10. And so what's so hard is like, you can have an amazing 10%, but when you have 90% against you, like, oh, it's so hard. And so then to make it all crazy, we shut down the company. I go, I started CoderPad. Um, COVID comes, March, 2020. The whole space blows up. And literally we had this text thread with the investors who were fantastic humans. Um, Jeremy Levine out of Bessemer did the deal at Rabbit, was an amazing partner through the whole thing. And all we could do is text in April, 2020 and be like, we would be killing it. We could sell mm -hmm. this business for $500 million right now. Because it goes back like, you know, it's the economy, it's the market, right? Everybody's trapped at home. Everybody wants to watch TV together. If only there was a way to watch shows with friends. Ah, oh, you know, nine months too late. Global pandemic, that should have been in my investor pitch. That's how we're gonna solve this problem. Global pandemic. But you had a similar experience with CoderPad, I imagine. Did 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 you get like almost like not to not to poke poke too much fun at you, but did you almost get like a little PTSD when all these startups and companies started announcing mass layoffs? And then when it started becoming 1,000, 2,000, you know, 10% became 25%, 30% of the companies. Yes. I mean, yeah, PTSD and my husband being like, what again? <laughs> And remember, you can't fail a CEO job twice, right? Right. No, so it was March 2020, right? And so first six weeks, everything's fine. And then everybody, you know, the economy's collapsing, right? We have no idea what's happening. So everybody's like, I remember Airbnb laid off something like 25% of their people. And I was just like, oh my God, here it comes. Here it comes. And I don't, I mean, they went from, they got, went to zero revenue. There's so many companies that went to zero revenue for so So for a minute, were you happy then that it didn't work with Airbnb at that time? Because <laughs> they would have laid me off anyway. <laughs> right. Did, did you kind of the back of you speak to your husband and go, you know, you know maybe it wasn't so, so bad. Well, there was a moment where I was like, God, I'm really glad we're not still running Hotel Tonight because that would be tough. Like Airbnb is a much right? bigger business. Okay. It's got a lot more, uh, well, yeah, you know, right. a lot less volatility in it. Um, but yeah, so then everything imploded and it, there were some dark days, but I was also glad that we were a team of, at that point, 10, maybe. Wow. Three to 10. Um, and I was so glad to be in a small company, but then everything whiplashed the other way, right? And then you didn't have enough people and you couldn't do things fast enough. And Facebook and everybody's hiring tens of thousands of people. And we saw that on the other side, 21, 22 was insane. And then that's a little bit of why when this next round of layoffs came and layoffs at FYI was trending and you know, we'd pull up the layoffs in 20, I guess it was, was uh, mid 22 to maybe even present day. And you look at layoffs and you're like, all right, well, we've been here before, but yeah, it's been kind of a wild, it's been a wild three or four years to be running a company. I mean, it's always wild to run companies, but like there's been a lot of ups and downs over the past couple of years. Keeps it exciting. I, I appreciate that perspective, right? Because I think very few people would have that same perspective if they were in your shoes, right? The the, the whiplash and almost this feeling of things are out of your control, right? Especially when you break down the numbers like 60, 30, 10. Oh my gosh, what, how devastating, right? When um, all, all the things that you can control, 90% are, are, are kind of up in the air or, or big question mark. I know, but like, that's why you gotta be humble about the whole thing, right? Like, 
I'm dating myself. There's this great skier named Johnny Mosley. I don't know if you guys remember him. I don't know. Downhill skiing used to be a thing. Freestyle skiing started in the 90s. If you're a skier, you're like moguls, jump, flip. Johnny Mosley's like a hero. And so he gives this presentation and this speech that talks about founding freestyle skiing. And so you're bouncing down the hill and you're like falling and crazy. And he talks about, and when they first started figuring out how to score skiing, they would not downhill, but freestyle, they would say a fall is not a fall unless you come to a stop. If you don't come to a stop, it's a recovery and great recoveries can score higher than a run without a fall. Wow. And I think that is a great lesson, right? Like great recoveries. I mean, that's ultimately what we're all doing. We're all in a series of great recoveries, unless you're not trying very hard, in which case you're on the bunny hill going slowly. Your choice. That's cool. But I'm over on the moguls, bouncing around, trying to flip, maybe flipping because I wanted to, maybe flipping because someone flipped me, but like, you got to just, it's all about the recovery. And so, um, Johnny Mosley's a great speaker guy. Um, but I just think about that all the time as I'm like, here we go again, another dip, another bounce, another customer, another trend. Um, but you got to love the bounce and you got to love the ride. It's never ending. If you think about it, we have what dot com boom and bust, 9 11, financial crisis, yeah. COVID. I mean, there's just, and then a number of in between stuff. So it just never ends. It's always something. I go, yeah, no, that's why Larry so Ellison just, goes sports because at least there's an F finish line. <laughs> no, and then everybody's like, oh, the commercial crisis and San Francisco's imploding. Like, there's always something. Just got to keep going. I really appreciate that lesson. Just got to keep going. I, I think that is something that more professionals can take to heart. And, and, and coupled with your advice of just putting it out there in the world, being honest in terms of what you want and, and really trying to go after it. Um, I, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Amanda, and sharing. I'm honored to be here. It was Thank super you so much. wonderful. I enjoyed it. That's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.